hands. Okay. My line is moving this time. Come on, line. There we go. Hey, right. <laughs> it's working for sure. I can see it now. Hey, everyone, and welcome to Chef AJ Live. I'm your host, Chef AJ, and this is where I introduce you to amazing people like you who are doing great things in the world that I think you should know about. Well, today is the second Thursday of the month, which means it's time for Vegan Doc Talk with Dr. Scott Harrington, where he answers questions that have been previously submitted to us by email. And he usually also gives a wonderful little presentation. Today, the topic is how to beat the heat, how you can thrive in hot weather. Please welcome him back to the show. How are you, Dr. Harrington? All right, all right, I'm doing well. And it always feels so good being here with you, Chef AJ. You're just such a positive, fun person to talk to. And I saw Mission Impossible, you were great. No. <laughs> Even though it wasn't you, I know, but you do look like Tom Cruise. You could be his brother, you know, actually. So I'm sure you hear that a lot. All right. All right. I wonder if he's vegan. I wonder. You know, I, I, I'm I, guessing he's not only because usually when a celebrity is, Pete is all over them and trying. I mean, I'll, I'll Google it, but I, for some reason, I think he probably thinks he probably needs Probably not. Right. Yeah. You know. No. So anyway, so, uh, you know, I, Dr. Melissa Sunderman was on the show and she's an athlete and she said, there's no such thing as bad weather, just inappropriate clothing. But I think she meant for cold weather, but for hot weather at a certain point, you're naked if you keep taking your clothes off. So <laughs> what do you do for hot weather? How do we thrive? I mean, I love the heat. It can never be too hot for me. I don't care for humidity, but the people that don't like the heat, how can we help them thrive? I love it. I love it. You know, this is a very pertinent topic. I feel like we hear more and more about the heat and climate change and it's getting hotter and we're boiling and it, it's just getting worse and worse. I, I've heard a saying like, welcome. This is the coldest summer for the rest of your life. It, uh, it's only going to get worse. So uh, get ready for the heat. So yeah. I, I thought it would be a great thing to discuss. Also, there's been several members of my extended family who've had heat exhaustion episodes. And we even had a, 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 one of the members of our family have a heat stroke that happened over, over the summer. And it's just been, it was severe and the, and the symptoms can be prolonged. So this happens to vegans, this happens to omnivores, it happens to everybody. Uh, but I did find some very interesting information about it that I'm gonna share with you today. Nice, thank you so much, I'm excited. So there are people that when they get hot, they don't thrive. And there's, you know, what, what is that? Is that just a genetic difference? Is it, you know, we were talking a little bit before there are people, I mean, different people like different weathers. That's for sure. That's true. That's true. Yeah. Uh, I, I, I like, you know, some people say I like it to be cold. Some people be say I like it to be hot. I think we all like, you know, certain temperatures and, you know, there's extremes uh, but, uh, when it comes to heat, you can't play around, you can't play around with heat, you know, because like you said, you can't, uh, if it's cold, you can just wear more garments. You can get, you know, put on a sweater, put on a hat, you know, get, you know, with, with heat, you have to actually get cool. You have to figure out a way to, to cool yourself. So I find uh, that if your head is wet, you're not as hot. I mean, when I lived in the desert and it was really, really hot, I just would wet my head and I did not feel hot anymore. I know. Well, you get a lot of heat exchange from the head and from the hands and feet, believe it or not. There's more capillaries uh, at the hands and feet. And the scalp is really, really vascular, vascular. So you get a lot of blood flow and you can have a lot of heat exchange. 
Well, you know, that old saying by, I think it was Mark Twain, everybody complains about the weather, but nobody does anything about it. But the thing is, is now the planet is burning up and it seems like nobody's doing anything about that. Sad. It's it's really sad. So if you don't like it hot, go vegan. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. That's right. We should be uh, yeah decreasing our environmental footprints by going vegan. We should be, you know, trying to end animal suffering by going vegan. But yes, the climate is a huge reason to go vegan. Uh, there's a lot of environmental vegans out there. Nice. Nice. Did you want to share screen? All right. I'm going to share my screen and we're going to go for it. Cool. Here we go. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay. All right. That's looking like it's working here. I'm going to hit play on it. Do you see it as uh Yeah, now I see it perfectly. Okay, this is my side because, you know, my name's Dr. Scott Harrington, and I'm the founder of Vegan Primary Care. And online and in person, uh, you can get a vegan doctor. And if you see me online in 26 states, you don't have to have a commute. And I can be your family doctor. I can order labs and referrals and that kind of thing. Just a quick introduction about myself. These are the 26 states. Unfortunately, we have lost Wyoming and Oklahoma. Just uh, so since our last talk, there's I had very few patients in this. It didn't make sense to keep it open economically for me. So we had lost these states. Um, but we still have 26 states going on. And, uh, and we also have our in-person location is in Pinellas Park, Florida. It's kind of the St. Pete, Tampa area. And uh, we're looking for a new location. Uh, that's going to be potentially in Oldsmar, Florida, which is a very good centralized location. We do take insurance, Aetna, Cigna, TRICARE, Medicare, and we also have a Facebook page, a members-only Facebook page. Any of the patients can enroll in this. One of the cool things we have with uh, vegan primary care patients is a you get to come to the Get to Your Goal weight loss meeting, which happens on 7 p.m. Eastern. Uh, on Tuesdays, and we get to talk about what went right on our week and our plant-based journey, and we get to go over icebreaker questions where we meet each other and uh, and help each other along with weight loss. So let's get straight to it. We're going to talk to we're going to talk about beat the heat, thriving in hot weather. Okay, what are we going to talk about? All right, we're going to talk about how heat impacts you, the physiology of heat and heat injury. We're gonna talk about ways to prevent it by staying hydrated. We're gonna talk about treatment, cooling techniques, and myths about those cooling techniques, recovery, acclimatization, and best practices. So first off, let's get into the risk factors for heat, what heat exhaustion and heat stroke are, and what's going on in your body. So who's at risk? The very young and uh, older folks over 65 tend to be higher risk. I want to point out that when you hear about things like COVID and COVID comorbidities that makes it more at risk for this inflammatory response people get with COVID, very interestingly, it is very similar to the way with heat stroke. Uh, people who have type 2 diabetes and cardiovascular disease, obesity, overweight, these are things that make people at risk more naturally for it. But also if you've had heat, uh, if, you're, if, you're if you have fever, so you're uh, the way your body controls the heat is out of whack at the moment. There are some 
uh, diseases that are very specific for heat injury, such as cystic fibrosis and sickle cell disease, but also your heat burden over several days. It can kind of build up and your uh, affect your body's ability, your own thermostat, the hypothalamus, its ability to affect your temperature and control your temperature going forward uh, as, as it gets hotter and hotter and your exposure goes up. Okay, what are some of the numbers? What are some of the numbers? Well, what we found is that heat is the weather condition that causes more deaths than any other weather conditions, such as hurricanes and floods. In the United States, heat is the number one killer. And so the Environmental Protection Agency suggests that 1,300 people die from extreme heat per year. And the CDC, had they had recommended about eight, they had suggested there was 8,000 deaths uh, from 99 to 2010. 72% was the main cause and 50% was a, a contributing factor was heart disease. So in this group of the CDC, the majority of the, the patients who died were male over 65 and 35% of them, 35% uh, uh, were over 65 and many of them lived in some of these states that claim to be the hottest such as Arizona, Texas and California. I wanted to point out these numbers as I was looking, there was not a lot of information about heat exhaustion and prolonged illness related to heat exhaustion. And that's a lot of times because these things go unreported. And it, and it just goes to show that we suspect that heat injury and reporting of heat injury and heat stroke is actually much lower than it, it is, it's reported. Where it's reported a lot is in sports. It's in sports. So I don't know how many of your uh, reader, uh, your subscribers, Chef AJ, are football players, but uh, football is the number one uh, sports-related um, sport that has heat-related death. 4.4 per 1,000 athletic exposures to heat, so like practices and that kind of thing, uh, which is a really high number, and it's 11 times higher than any other sport. So all the other sports combined, actually. So I had to mention that, I, that, you know, you think intense activity, wearing the helmets, covering the body, not allowing the heat to escape. Um, soldiers is a big one. You know, I'm in the military, I'm in the reserves. Uh, heat injury is a big deal in the military. We're always looking ways to try to prevent it. The non-fatal incidence of heat injury is not known. Potentially, these are 100% preventable deaths. And so that it needs to be, we need to all be thinking about this and how to prevent uh, heat injuries. And it's unknown why some people tolerate higher temperatures without injury, like people on the Tour de France and everything. They did studies where they put uh, capsules to monitor people's internal temperature. And they saw that people got very hot. These athletes got very hot. And it was, it was hard to predict who would get a heat injury, even when their heat temperature was all the way up to 104, which is where the definition of heat stroke comes in. So very interesting topic. So what is heat exhaustion versus heat stroke? Well, uh, with heat stroke, you think about stroke, you think about something that's happening to the brain. And so the heat exhaustion are things that lead up to these um, mental type uh, concerns. So we're talking about dizziness, heavily sweating, feeling super tired, exhausted, 
weakness. Your body is telling you, hey, you're too hot. You got to stop. You got to stop. And we have to listen to our body. So this is, this is key. In terms of heat stroke, there's actually a term in medicine called encephalopathy. And what this means is the global brain damage that's happening versus stroke. We kind of think of like one part of the brain not getting oxygen and having a problem in one part of the brain. So it's kind of almost a misnomer, but um, uh, maybe it should be called heat encephalopathy, but uh, because you have a global heat uh, damage to the brain or the entire brain causes confusion. Uh, it can cause feeling super dizzy, being unconscious, coma-like state, combative, acting inappropriately. Here it goes a little bit deeper. Um, with uh, heat illness, once again, we talked about those symptoms, but uh, in here we talk also about the a component of like muscle cramping. And uh, this is another big thing you should listen to your body for a reason to slow down, stop and get cool. Um, another big one is racing heart or, or, or feeling like you're doing an athletic event and all of a sudden you're feeling out of shape. Like why, why all of a sudden today can I not tolerate as much exercise as I could the day before? So let's talk about heat stroke. Heat stroke, it's the core temperature of 104 or more plus the mental status symptoms of confusion, inappropriate behavior, uh, being almost like drunk where you where it's hard to walk around. They call it ataxia. Sometimes people see seizures, incontinence, uh, and vomiting, and it can get as high as where you're completely unconscious. Okay, so we've probably all heard those kind of things, but let's let's learn about what leads to uh, the shock that happens in heat stroke. How does heat stroke happen? Well, you start with the heart has to beat faster to push to to push the blood to your skin to radiate the heat. So uh, what I'm showing you is this little divergent pathway. So it will vasodilate. It will turn on the spigot to the blood in your uh, periphery, the arms and legs, so that your body can send blood there to be cooled by sweat and evaporative cooling. And then it also turns down the blood flow to the viscera, the internal organs. Uh, they call it uh, splanchnic vasoconstriction. And so the body does this, the, the thermostat, the hypothalamus in the brain does this switcheroo so that you can uh, radiate heat and cool yourself down. Your body will sweat. This causes dehydration, causes lower blood pressure. And so one of the most interesting things I found about this topic was that the GI tract plays a role here. As the GI tract is getting less and less blood flow, it's becoming a little bit more permeable, a little bit leaky gut type syndrome that can happen where bacteria from the gut can start to come into uh, the bloodstream or particles of bacteria can start to be leaked into the bloodstream and it causes a robust inflammatory response. And so this is actually a part of heat stroke. Who knew? GI stuff and the gut is coming into play in more things than, than I ever imagined. So you can have bacterial toxins that come through. The heat, if you actually get over 105 degrees, the cells actually can break down, denature, and they uh, can release toxins, inflammatory mediators, 
all this leading up to a shock-like symptom, almost like sepsis. And you can see how this kind of is a, is, is a spiral. So very interesting. So this paper here, uh, interactions of gut microbiota and endotoxins, immune function, and exertional heat stroke. This, this, uh, this paper was just very interesting, and they correlated Western-type diets that were high in fat and low in fiber to a poor microbiome and increased risks for having endotoxins or bacteria being bacterial toxins being released into the bloodstream and basically making heat injury more likely. So I thought that was highly interesting. So I don't want vegans to think they have vegan superpowers and they can ignore the heat, but it, it could be a reason why uh, vegan patients are somewhat less susceptible than others for heat injury. Don't be cavalier, don't be cavalier, but this is somewhat of a protective effect. Another thing, another garland to put in our hat about uh, the health benefits of the plant-based diet. Okay, all right. Another reason why I did this lecture was because of the prolonged effects that I'm seeing in my loved ones who've had heat illness. And so some of the studies here, the first, first three bullets uh, increased risk for various cardiovascular conditions. These people were followed for 14 years and people who had a previous heat stroke had four times the risk for heart attack, five times the risk for stroke, and 15 times the risk for atrial fibrillation. And in military members who had had a previous heat stroke, 15% had repeat uh, heat strokes during their time in the military. Um, anecdotally though, it's very, it's very tough. It's very, there's not a lot of information about this, but anecdotally people talk about uh, taking a long time to recover, having brain fog, fatigue, word finding problems, definitely decrease exercise tolerance. It can exacerbate mental health disorders. Uh, and, you know, just being hot in general, just being hot in general, the body likes it to be really cold at night. We like to kind of curl up in our cave and like it to have 68 degrees, really cold uh, at night for better sleep. As you get hotter, you have worse sleep outcomes and worse sleep outcomes. Uh, going to bed later, waking up earlier can affect mental health dramatically. So heat in general has a problem with that, but uh, heat injury definitely affects it. Okay, how to beat the heat, how to stay hydrated, how often, monitoring your urine output, electrolytes and thirst, is following thirst good enough? Well, this here is the Institute of Medicine is describing how much water we should drink per day. It's actually a liter more than what I've shown here, but we're assuming about a liter of water is consumed during your, uh, with your food, especially vegans, maybe we can get more than that, we have high water content vegetables and fruit uh, that can um, uh, be made up in our diet. But so for, for women, four to seven cups, for men, six to 11 cups per day, this is just normal. This is just what you should drink. Why did I put the water bottles on here? I'm not promoting plastic. I'm just promoting the fact that these water bottles are 500 milliliters and it's people tend to know the, the size of the water bottle. So, Hydration guidelines. If you use thirst as your key, you might be one third down. 
one third down. During exercise, uh, drinking to just quench your thirst only replaces two thirds of the sweat losses that you have uh, with exercise. And so I thought that was very interesting. It's key before you exercise, you want to prehydrate a little bit. You don't want to start your exercise being dehydrated because dehydration is one of the risks for heat injury. The CDC recommends drinking one cup of water every 15 to 20 minutes while working out in the heat. And that translates to a quarter to three quarters to one liter per hour. So close to two water bottles per hour max on that. Monitor your urine output. You know, you don't want to get dehydrated. So this is the, you know, you may have seen this like color chart. You want your basically your urine to be clear. That seems pretty, pretty reasonable. The darker gets, the more dehydrated you are. Okay. Heat index. We've all heard of heat index. The heat index is very high. Uh, uh, what does this mean? Well, the heat index tries to relate uh, heat and humidity because if it's high humidity, it feels hotter than it, than it really is. Um, so for example, if it's uh, 90 degrees uh, Fahrenheit, if it's 90 degrees and it's 60 degrees relative humidity, it feels like it's 100 degrees. So that's uh, too hard to uh, see the little, little numbers, but that's an example. Here is the OSHA NIOSH app. This is a free app that will pull up your the local temperature and provide you with the, the heat index. It's free. Uh, it's the heat safety tool. This is what it looks like. Okay, work rest, work rest. So there are a lot of work rest cycle information out there. And the one I adapted this from was from the US Army because I am a in the US Army soldier. And um, I think this is a great reference, but the army uses something called the wet bulb, the wet bulb. The wet bulb is a, a thermometer with a little uh, wet gauze on it and it tests the temperature uh, in the direct sun. Uh, whereas heat index assumes it to be slightly shady, slightly uh, breezy with the humidity. The wet bulb takes in the humidity at the direct sun. So it's a little bit different. Uh, and uh, this is a work rest cycle. So what you can see is as work goes up, easy work, moderate work, you have to rest. You have to rest. And the hotter it is, the more you have to rest. So for example, if the wet bulb uh, shows that it's 85 degrees Fahrenheit and you're doing hard work, you can do your hard work and then you have to have for 30 minutes and have 30 minutes rest. And uh, that's if you're doing very hard work such as hiking with a load of 40 pounds or doing prolonged exercise. The same thing can be um, used for water, water recommendations. So it goes from 500 mils, which is one water bottle, to 1,000 mils is two water bottles. So more work, more heat, more water. So can you get too much water? Yes, you can actually get too much water. Sometimes this happens to my patients if they're trying to force water, if they have a UTI and they're drinking a lot. Uh, or honestly, my patients who are just starting with diabetes, they don't know it and they're, and they're drinking too much and losing too much urine, that you can actually lower your body sodium by drinking too much. So try to avoid, use the three water bottle number as a max per hour, max per hour. Do, do that and you can avoid this hyponatremia. Okay, what about sports drinks? So 
you know, it can get expensive to do these sports drinks all the time. And these sports, you know, uh, the like powders and the sports tablets. So the goal for sports drinks with the electrolytes is to help you avoid cramping from lost electrolytes during your exercise. But if you're only exercising less than an hour, you don't necessarily need to replenish your electrolytes because there's not going to, there's only going to be so much loss. So just stick to water. Uh, it's cheaper and easier to obtain if you're less than an hour of exercise. And then just do simple, you know, normal eating. You can maintain your electrolytes and replenish those. But if you're going on long runs, ac activities where you're going to be sweating, having a lot of, of losses throughout the day, you should include a sports drink. Now, sports drinks are going to be a little too sweet uh, and have more, more, more carbs than they need. So you can water them down a little bit, maybe halfway for Gatorade, uh, but it will contain some of those electrolytes for you to help replenish it. You've all seen maybe if you've had a, a dry environment, you've had a lot of sweating, you can actually see the salt from your sweat caking on the, on the clothes. That's, um, so that's what you're trying to replenish. Therapeutic cooling. Let's get into cooling. This is where the myths come in. This is where the myths come in. And the myth stops here. Basically, cooling, the way you cool someone is the quickest way you can. The quickest way you can. Uh, if you imagine the old, uh, the old uh, public service announcement, this is your brain, this is your brain on drugs. Uh, the, you know, the, as the proteins denature, they actually change. And so you wanna actually prevent uh, proteins from being denatured or damaged from heat. So the way you do this is you cool them down as quickly as possible, you don't fool around. And the quickest way to do this is an ice water immersion bath. Okay, so if you are doing an athletic event, if you're in charge of it or you're around it, you wanna make sure that they have these, uh, have these facilities available. Uh, and, and this is starting to become standard now at, at marathons and at uh, track and field events and this kind of thing, football events where they have these available, tubs full of ice, ready and waiting. So what happens if you're starting to experience symptoms? Move to the shade, uh, take, you know, start removing some of the clothing and equipment, definitely. Uh, if you have the ability to get vital signs, get gets a temperature. We'll talk more about thermometers in a second. And then check mental status, because mental status is kind of the key between heat stroke and heat exhaustion. So uh, if, if, the, if, the, if you're experiencing weakness, dizziness, nausea, maybe even feelings of like you have to vomit, that could be heat exhaustion. If you're confused, if, if people are saying that you are combative or not following commands, then that could be heat stroke. So for heat stroke, what you want to do is you want to immerse them, immerse them in ice water. And uh, for heat exhaustion, if and a lot of times if you are not prepared for this and you can't cool, that is the preferred thing is to cool rapidly. But if you're not prepared, you don't have ice and things. So what can you do? You can elevate the legs, get in the, the shade, drink water. You can have people pour water over you. Uh, and then transport to the ER if things don't seem to be getting better, transport to an area where you can cool them more effectively. So for heat stroke, we're going we're gonna to talk about you know, ice baths, dousing, ice packs. Do these things work? How fast do they work? Let's talk about it. Uh, 
some myths, some myths. So they used to say in medicine, oh, we want to cool them down to 102, but then stop because we don't want the trajectory to go too low and then to shiver and warm back up. Uh, that was uh, one of the things that uh, expert advice that they had recommended. Uh, but now this is kind of out the window. This is out the window. The goal is to keep getting them down into a more physiologic, closer to 98.6, uh, and then continuing to monitor them to make sure they don't they don't go back up. But uh, it and it's hard to overcool people. And you can use mental status as the guide. So let's talk about the rates at which people actually get cool from these various techniques. What you'll see here is that if you immerse someone in ice water up to their neck, you can get them down from 104 to 102 in three minutes. So that's that's pretty rapidly. You compare that to uh, dousing, dousing with ice cold water. It's dousing, it takes an additional two minutes. That's five minutes. Or um, one of the things that they have uh, uh, suggested was that you could bring coolers full of ice and towels you could take towels and have them full of the ice water and you could put them on people and rub them down with the ice towels. Uh, that's actually pretty effective. And uh, if you cover 90% of their body, you can get them cool in six minutes. Uh, sheets are not as effective, can take up to 17 minutes. And um, what we don't see on here is a fan with evaporative cooling. And the reason why I don't have this on there is that most places where people experience severe heat injury, it's really humid and the evaporative cooling is, it works, it's less effective. So that was a, kind of the main myth I wanted to dispel. Use immersive uh, cooling and don't use fan cooling as the preferred method. Okay, acclimatization. How long does it take? What happens to your body during acclimatization and recovery? So there's various plans you'll see with this. And, and no, I don't know if we have figured this out perfectly yet, but the most dangerous period is the first seven days. Uh, what you want to do if you are, if it's if you're into a new sport and you're just starting out, for the first 10 to 14 days, about two weeks, just gradually increase your exercise duration and intensity. And you want to be doing it in mild heat at least so that, uh, that your body is starting to get acclimatized. So you can do it a little bit later during the day uh, to, as, you're, as you're increasing. If in terms of OSHA and work-related illnesses and, and this kind of thing, OSHA is requiring uh, businesses that have uh, facilities that are in the heat to have you know, work rest schedules and work acclimatization schedules. And it's, it's pretty mild here, it's just, one quarter or one fifth per day extra. So 20% exposure of the work heat, work and heat on day one, and then 40% on day two, 60%, and so on, so on. What is the deal? What's happening to our adaptations that occur as we uh, get more accustomed to the heat? And what's happened is our body's ability to cool itself gets better because we are we increase our ability to sweat we clamp down on the amount of salt that's lost during the sweating and we sweat earlier. Uh, another thing is the plasma volume. Plasma is the liquid portion of the blood, uh, sort of the straw colored liquid portion of the blood actually increases a little bit. So it's a little bit harder. We hold on to a little bit more water. It's a little harder to get dehydrated. 
and we also improve the blood flow, this blood flow pathway that I was talking about before. That gets a little bit more robust. Okay. Heat exhaustion and heat stroke. Heat stroke can take a long time to recover from. And people can have permanent changes in personality. They can have uh, prolonged time to, to recovery and word finding, and very similar to an encephalopathy or, or an actual stroke um, where they're, they're different. They've had actual organ damage. Where heat exhaustion, it is not uh, permanent damage in general. Uh, so you could, you could start to recover three to four days and start to do your acclimatization program. Okay, best practices for staying cool. This is straight from the CDC. I like this little guy. He's got a hat. He's wearing some loose clothes, although I would recommend kind of wearing some loose long sleeve clothing to protect from the sun uh, as long as it's very loose and breathable. Uh, and uh, I think I, I've seen people wear even the balaclavas and stuff like that for, uh, for you know, avoiding sun exposure. Uh, it, it can get... Interestingly, sunscreen doesn't necessarily prevent you from having heat in injury, but it protects your skin from sunburn. And then having, having disrupted skin makes you more prone to, to heat injury. So let's see if I got everything. I think I got everything there. Uh, the other one here is drink, drink an electrolyte solution, like sports drinks, if you're doing exercise longer than 60 minutes. Okay, we're almost done here. Let's talk about thermometers. For thermometers, uh, the key for uh, heat stroke diagnosis is 104 with mental symptoms of a rectal temperature, a core temperature. Not many people are doing rectal temperatures uh, uh, normally right now, and no one's volunteering for it in general. Uh, but if you think about all the different types of thermometers, you've got the new point and shoot, the infrared thermometers, non-contact. These are great because you could, you know, you're not getting exposed to people who have COVID. You're just clicking. They work great in healthcare institutions for mass screening and this kind of thing. And they're quick. Uh, in terms of the accuracy, though, they leave a little bit to be uh, desired. And so rectal temperature is best in terms of accuracy, then goes to the ear, the auricular temperature, then oral, and then the, um, the point and click infrared. Uh, and, and so let's talk about that. The way that the accuracy starts to break down is that at the higher temperatures, at the extremes of these temperatures, it gets less and less accurate. And so uh, if you find that you someone has a heat injury and you check their temperature and it's not very high, maybe it's 101, you want to assume the worst, assume that it's very high and you want to treat. And that's because accuracy starts to break down. So they say that it has a very good specificity. If it shows that it's high, uh, believe that it's high. But if it shows that it's low, you could be dealing with a false negative, especially at those higher temperatures. Okay, overview. Hey, beat the heat. Stay hydrated. Prehydrate if you're gonna do some event. We want to have a work rest plan. Think about it ahead of time. If you know that you're going to be in the heat and you can't avoid it, make sure you have a work rest time, dress appropriately. Listen to your body. This is serious. Don't try to gut it out. Don't, don't assume that all of a sudden you just have uh, 
you know, just out of shape. It's not that you're out of shape, it's that you're having a heat injury. Uh, assume a higher temperature on these more peripheral temperature probes and uh, uh, oral, oral auricular and the infrared temperature, assume it's higher than what it says. And start cooling early with immersive cooling. You want to wet yourself with ice water if possible, ice cold shower, running water, cold running water from the hose outside of the heat and make a plan for recovery. Know that, know that what you've been through is going to affect you and give yourself time. All right, so I'm Dr. Harrington. Once again, these are the insurances that I use. This is Vegan Primary Care's members only Facebook site. We have that for our members. We're in 26 states uh, and our in-person locations of Pine Alice Park, Florida. And that's me, Dr. Harrington. Thank you so much for listening and I'm ready to answer your questions. All right, thank you, Dr. Harrington. Very, very informative. There's lots of questions, so let's get through as many as we can. And guys, I'm so sorry we can't take questions from the chat, but if you send them in to us, when we send our weekly email, you just tell us which doctor they're for. All right, let's get to this one. Oh, gosh, they're so long. We're going to be putting something in the email that's saying if it's more than two sentences, you have to <laughs> redo this. It's just they need an appointment, but OK, I'll, I'll, I'll read them fast when they're long. Uh, this is from if they're anonymous, tell us at the beginning, not at the end. And this I can say the name, Carol. I'm 57-year-old female, been whole food plant-based ten years for 10 years. Two years ago, I started having sneezing and allergy symptoms. When I was eating a sad diet, I had seasonal allergies, but they went away when I changed my diet and suddenly came back two years ago. I'm not positive, but the sneezing could have started after I had COVID. Any ideas on what I should test for or try to do to resolve this? She's a sneezer. All right. Well, uh, so we assume that it's allergies, you know, just uh, I, I'm not assuming that COVID did some special damage to your nose, although people talk about the, the sometimes people talk about that. Um, definitely, if, if you have a new allergy and you're not, it's not tolerable, like you're, you're being annoyed and it's getting worse and worse and more frequent. Um, I would recommend seeing an allergist. They do the little pinprick testing. It's a pretty easy test to get done. Uh, and they can tell you exactly what you're allergic to. And, you know, always treat the cause, right? Treat the cause. So they're the most equipped to kind of tell you exactly what you're allergic to. And you can try to do trigger avoidance, trigger avoidance. So, um, but you know that Dr. Harrington's excited about nasal washes, nasal washes. And um, there's these squirt bottles where you can basically get your nose wet and let it drain out. Do that on both sides, kind of like a neti pot. You've seen these things. What you're doing there is you're literally washing away the triggers, washing away. And um, I'm talking like breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Just doing the wash and letting it run out, you get a little seepage from inside out that washes you from the inside out. It's way underrated, and we need to be doing these nasal washes more than we, we think. Now, you think three times a day, really? Well, yeah, you want, I mean, if you go outside, you come back in. I joke around that, um, well, uh, that anytime I sneeze, I'm like, uh-oh, I've been exposed to something that's a potential uh, pathogen. And so I'll go rinse my nose. <laughs> so I'm a nose rinser. So, uh, 
The problem is, though, you have to wash the bottle every time and boil the water. They don't make it easy. I know. I know. So so that is the problem. There is a there is a potential concern for, um, you know, like the tap water could have um, it could have chlorine in it. And then, you know, there's also this scary amoeba thing they talk about where one in a million people will get this amoeba brain eating amoeba thing. I am a little bit more practical of that. And I sometimes I'm not using, uh, you know, hundred percent saline and this kind of thing, but, uh, yeah, the, the idea is to, if it's, if it's beneficial, you can use it several times a day, not to get too aggressive. I'm not talking about where you have to pour it in the nose and it comes out the other side. I'm just talking about, you know, percolating a little water in the nose that can help to rinse it. Um, and this is a way to do it without medicine. Now, if you want to, if you want to, not go to the allergist, not figure out the trigger, and you want to use medicine, there's antihistamines like Allegra, Claritin, or Zyrtec, and then there's nasal steroids. But, you know, gosh, let's try to stay away from medicines if we can. Yeah. So you like those little, you know, you know what, Neil MD, that little plastic bottle, is that what, you know, yes. you, put the little, you put the little thing in it. That's what yes. Neil, yeah, Neil Med MD nasal squirt bottle, that thing it will like blow your face off. It's really works and it's really cheap. It's, no, I've done it. It's just that I get out of the habit because it's like, oh, now I got to wash it. Now I got to boil the water. That's the reason. Because they say like, do not use, uh, you know, sink water or or even. I know. I know. I, I, I worry about, you know, I mean, the gold standard would be to use, you know, distilled water, then use the bags. And that would be distilled and completely, you know, but it's not, it's not a, uh, it's not a sterile environment in the nose. You know, there's lots of bacteria and that kind of thing. So, so I, can I, you use distilled water instead of boiling water and letting it cool? Well, yeah, you could use distilled because it's been oh, nice, good. but you still have to wash the little bottle after every use. I think I, you could probably just dry it out. And as long as it's dry, I, I you know, okay. I, I'm kind of not very germaphobic necessarily. Uh, I, I'm not saying you are, but I, I think that yeah. might be overkill and delay you for, and, and stop okay. you from doing the, the technique. Or just get multiple bottles and then. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Thank you. This question's from Kathy. She says she's a 63-year-old SOS free vegan and very lean. She started to develop red blotches on her arms and legs. Sometimes if I knock my arm or leg, they appear, but other times they seem to appear spontaneously. Her skin is thin. The only medication she takes is prolia. I don't know what that is. An injection every six months. Blood work is normal. What is causing the blotches? Can I prevent them? Uh, they eventually fade and new ones come out. What is prolia? Maybe you could tell the audience. Okay, so prolia is a medicine. Uh, it's an anabolic medicine for osteoporosis, and and so um, so yeah. There's there's sort of the discussion about osteoporosis. I, I I'm not sure. I haven't heard that prolia causing rashes. But uh, what what I'm assuming what I'm assuming is if you have osteoporosis, you're you're uh, probably somewhat older and somewhat more thin, and potentially the concern is that as as we get older, as we get more frail, as our you know even lower body fat, even lower body fat percent, you wonder if that has, plays a role, and in, in um, you know the skin elasticity and this kind of thing, or more prone to injury. But this is something that people talk about all the time. You know, oh man, I bump up to something. And as we get older, especially in the areas of our skin that are damaged by the sun. So, it, you know, it, when, I look at my, when I look at my arm on this side versus this side, I have much less radiation damage on the underside of my arm. And on the top side of my arm, much more radiation damage. 
and what that radiation wreaks havoc on your skin elasticity and thickness over the years. So um, the skin integrity is probably damaged from age and the sun. And so you, you are in sort of a preventative mode. You're trying to avoid uh, getting bumped cuts and stuff like that. So it's, it's uh, wearing long sleeves and, um, and this kind of thing. So I'm not sure about it. It sounds like you might have a specific rash type, um, type illness. And uh, with this, you know, I'd like to see pictures and try to check it out. You, you know, if I was, if you were my patient, you could uh, send over a picture and we'd look at it or show me on online and uh, that, that might help. Okay. Thank you. I know that Dr. McDougal doesn't recommend Prolia or any of those osteoporosis drugs. Yeah. So that, that, um, you know, that can be somewhat of a minefield, but uh one of the problems is there's primary prevention and then there's secondary prevention. So I, um, I kind of uh, uh, am on the fence of in primary prevention, if someone's not had a, uh, a fracture before, then I'm a little bit less, uh, I, a little bit, my recommendation is a little looser in regarding to these like bone building anabolic type, um, you know, Fosamax and, and uh, which is uh, to try to avoid loss of bone. But when someone has had I, some of my patients who are relatively more frail, uh, have been underweight for a long time, and they uh, have had multiple fractures, this is not this has not gone from primary prevention. It's gone to secondary prevention, and this this could end their life in their life if they break a hip. And so, um, some of my patients are in this scenario where it's almost like we not, we've got to try to do everything we can, modern medicine to try to try to help. So, um, you know, there's there's a, there's kind of it's a spectrum. Got it. Thank you. Next question is from Victoria. For three decades, I was a vegetarian, and then about three years ago, I became began eliminating dairy, eggs, and oil too. This year, at 76, I had my first fracture, my wrist. My family blames it on the way I'm eating now and thinks I need to take calcium supplements and drink milk, both of which I will not do. Even the direction from the orthopedic office was to take a calcium supplement. Now I'm starting to second guess myself about my bones. I'd appreciate Dr. Harrington's thoughts on the subject. Okay, so uh, first things first is the idea of, is this a pathologic fracture or a kind of a normal reasonable fracture? And if, if you fall and you break a wrist, that's, uh, that's one thing, because uh, you have a reasonable mechanism for it happening. Uh, if you have what they call the pathologic fractures, or you know, I was just walking down the street and my hip broke or my spine broke, that is, uh, uh, you know, definitely want to be more aggressive uh, with these pathologic fractures. Uh, in terms of, uh, you know, one of the risks is as vegans, we tend to be lower weight. And, you know, it's, it's one of those things. You can't have it all sometimes, you know. Um, people who are overweight have more stress on their bones and their bones they have higher, higher bone density because of the necessity for, the, uh, for, for that. So, one of the things as your BMI gets lower and lower and lower and lower, um, the bones take a hit as well a little bit. And so uh, if someone is worried about building bone, I actually recommend if they're under BMI 20 to try to get into the 20 to 22 BMI range uh, because 
you want to be you want to be a little bit anabolic. You want to be building a little bit if you're trying to build your bones. So so that's one thing. The other thing is the idea of um, how much calcium, how much vitamin D. So I used to say it's a, it's like a three legged stool. Three three legged stool. You used used to say we'd say calcium, vitamin D, and exercise. But I like to flip it around. I like to say exercise, vitamin D, and calcium. But I don't want people supplementing, over-supplementing with calcium because they have found associated problems in the nurse's health study with, with heart attacks and people taking over 2,000 2, milligrams calcium. And so there is, um, based on various studies, they say 1,000 to 1,200 is what you need if you have osteoporosis. But then, you know, you see various studies that study between seven and 800. If you're getting at least seven to 800 uh, milligrams of calcium, calcium in your diet, I'm, I'm usually, I usually recommend that's good. That's good. And as long as you're uh, taking vitamin D and getting it up uh, above 30, above 30, if you, you know, you can get vitamin D from the sun. And if you, if you, if you want to do it that way too, we just try to make sure that you get it over 30. If you don't, then we can supplement just to get you up. So you want everybody's BMI to be uh, 20? Well, if they've had, well, I mean, when you're dealing with people who've had fragility fractures and, and they're worried about building their bone, um, you know, they can exercise and, and this kind of thing, but they're in this sort of um, a little bit more uh, problematic area. They have, um, it, it's, a, it's a little bit more, it's harder to be kind of in an anabolic state uh, building when, uh, when you're kind of in this uh, area. Um, it, uh, I, I'm not, not trying to judge on people who, who are less than BMI 20. It, it, uh, it just kind of makes sense that if you're kind of going in and out, up and down uh, around this area, let's say you get sick. Let's say you wind up in the hospital. Let's say you have a time where you can't eat for whatever reason. You're already kind of on this edge that uh, you, could, you, could, you can go farther into almost like an anorexic type range. Um, and and uh, in, in this case, for people who've had fractures, it might be a little bit better because one of the protective factors is like body fat. Um, one of the people who are, who are obese, they have more body fat and they have cushion around the, the joints and stuff like that. I'm not selling people to be obese. Uh, it, it's just one of the potential recommendations for people who are starting to become like frail and uh, and this this is starting to become a topic uh, of um, uh, you know fractures and that kind of thing. But if they haven't had fractures, do you still want them to get their BMI up? And can they do it without gaining weight, like maybe by gaining muscle instead? Right, 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 right. Cool. Wow. My, you know, I mean, I mean, I'm so proud that I finally got mine down to 18, and now you're telling me you wanted it 20. No, I, I'm not trying. I I don't want to. I don't want to. Uh, you know shame everybody or, or make anybody think that their body type is um, problematic. It, it's, uh, yeah, so, so uh, yeah, don't, don't shoot the messenger on this one. This is uh, just, <laughs> if you're trying to build, if you're trying to build, you have to get a little bigger, you know, and bone, you're trying to build your bones. You can't build the bones. It's, you're less likely to build the bones at that same weight. You're going to, you're going to have a better anabolic building as you, uh, as you gain a little bit more weight. Got it. Thank you. This is from Rita. Uh, dedicated, strict, not even eating out, whole food, plant-based, no oil, only processed food I eat is tofu and tempeh once a week. Did not eat nuts, avocados for the past three years. Weight is 55113. 
Oh, that's low. That's lower. That's got to be lower than a BMI of 18 because I, uh -oh. weigh, I weigh more than that. And I'm five, five run five to six miles a day on treadmill issue is cholesterol. It actually went up on the last blood test to 244 HDL 69 LDL 152. I'm so discouraged and can't understand this. My GP said we'll retake the test in three and six months. And we're both confounded. The only thing I contribute this would be familial. Any insights would be appreciated. Okay, well, um, help me out on this, uh, Chef AJ. Uh, help me get some of the, the parameters. So she's got high cholesterol, but she's low to norm, low weight. She says uh, she's one thirteen five five. Runs yeah. five to six miles a day, um, and but her her last cholesterol test was two forty four. Okay, so two forty four. If that's a, a that's total, that's high. If that's LDL, that's extremely high. It's total. Um, I think that's total because she says HDL sixty nine, LDL one fifty two. Yeah. Okay. 152. 152 is high, but it's not like, um, you know, like 190 is like people freak out after 190 on the LDL. Um, let's, let's transition the question to what do you do if someone is eating a whole food plant-based diet without salt, oil, or sugar, and they're eating a high fiber diet and it's low in saturated fat, a risk factor for elevating your cholesterol. What do you do then? What do you do then? Well, yes, it's probably familial. It's probably in your genes. If you imagine us on the prairie or in some sort of pre-modern civilization where we're gathering, you know, gathering a lot of herbs and, you know, roots and stuff like this, the assumption is that our fiber intake was so high, you know, 75, 100 grams of fiber. Um, us vegans, we're, you know, we're at 50, we're doing really good. We're at 50, having one or more bowel movements a day. But, you know, our our, um, our counterpart, standard American diets, 12 to, you know, 18. Fiber plays a big role in uh, decreasing the absorption, reabsorption of cholesterol. So double check the fiber, make sure you're doing that. You can even do psyllium husk. Psyllium husk has a lot of soluble fiber and is, is proven to reduce cholesterol. Same thing with, uh, with flax, ground flax. The other thing is you can watch your saturated fat. Uh, saturated fat messes up the receptor that pulls the cholesterol into the blood. So you, you have higher in the blood. But let's say, let's say that uh, you are doing this. You're eating a great diet. What do you do now? There are supplements. There are things you can try. And there's things like amla powder, which works on absorption. There's things like berberine that work on uh, production from the liver. Those are the two, two sides. There's something called a portfolio diet. The portfolio diet where you're having various grains and high soluble fibers, beans. Uh, also, they even, do, they even do a small serving of nuts in the portfolio diet. It's not necessarily required. But um, so you can make sure you're getting a lot of those components. There's other supplements called plant sterols. And that's another, another thing. Um, stanols work well too, uh, to help with cholesterol a little bit. But unfortunately, I haven't found a plant, uh, I haven't found a stanols, plant stanols product that wasn't vegan. I mean, that I haven't found a vegan plant sterol product because they all have milk chocolate in it, uh, these chews. Um, the uh, person who is a lipid specialist, Thomas Dayspring, recommends plant stanols over plant sterols. Uh, and, uh, but I haven't found one that's vegan yet. So 
those are some uh, supplement tips. And what I have people do is go on some quick experiments. Quick experiments is this. We'll give them, um, once we figure out that your cholesterol is high and they're doing everything right, we can try to do two experiments. We give two tests with cholesterol and ApoB. ApoB is another LDL-like particle that includes all the atherogenic particles. Um, we give them these two tests and then they'll do AMLA for two weeks and take a test and then try berberine for three weeks and take a test. So you get the quick turnaround to see if it helps you at all. Uh, there are other tests like oxidated LDL and, you know, HSCRP. So there's other tests to try to figure out if you're dealing with inflammation plus the cholesterol. There's tests called uh, uh, lipoprotein A that'll tell you if you have higher risk about whether you should be concerned about this number or not. So we go through a couple of those things. We, there's, also, uh, there's also statins and Zetia that you can use uh, for the sort of FDA-approved meds. But uh, most of my patients aren't interested in doing those, uh, so they want to try a supplement route. Couple things: if you do uh, red yeast rice, I recommend against red yeast rice because red yeast rice is the same kind of components that are in statins. They kind of have very similar effect to statins. If you're going to do the H uh, red yeast rice, I recommend a statin. And um, what else? What else? There is a special test from Boston Heart. Boston Heart Laboratories and something called Empower DX, where they can, Empower DX will actually send you a, a lab at your house when you just pick your finger and you, you um, send your blood through a home kit. And it will tell you if you are a hyper producer or a hyper absorber. And uh, this is kind of can gear uh, your treatments to that. But I don't think it's a good idea to ignore cholesterol. You know, some of the doctors you say, well, if you're vegan and you don't have inflammation, you can ignore it. But I think it's still a good idea to try to get it down as low as you possibly can. Try to eat the right way to get it to get it low um, because we're looking for any way we can improve our longevity, our health span. And we know it's a direct risk factor for clogging the pipes. So I think it's a worthwhile exercise to try to tinker with it. It kind of stinks when you're doing everything right and you don't have the results you want. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, okay, thank you. Okay, um, so we answered that one. Let me just mark it answered. So, because what we do now is we're so, we, we actually email the people. That's why we take email questions when it's answered so they know to watch. Okay, oh, um, here, this is interesting. From Julia, how nitric oxide levels compare in sprouts versus fully grown greens? Oh no, I don't know the answer to this one. Okay, and I'll uh, save it for somebody that does. Don't worry about it. That's a, I mean, yeah, I've always heard that sprouts are kind of more concentrated with various, um, and you have to eat a lot of them to, uh, you can eat, eat less and get the same sort of uh, effect that you get from the larger, art, larger plant. So they're more concentrated. So that, that's what I know. You can do those nitrate sticks to, to nitric oxide sticks in the saliva to see if nitrate's working. You know, I actually, somebody gave me those as a present. I never used them, but you know, I, I'm not just not big on testing things because if something's bad, I just don't want to know, but it, maybe I should bring them out. It could be fun. Yeah. Just to real, real watching live. Angela, you gave me those and I haven't used them yet because I'm worried that like, what if I don't get a good number, you know? 
Well, um, you, you probably heard about, you know, how Dr. Esselstyn, you know, yeah. talks about the endothelium and the, the nitric oxide produced by the endothelium and that at age 50, we're 50% on this. So I did a little trick. I tested myself and I was really bad. I was like, uh-oh. And then I tested my son because he's young, you know, he's only 15 and his lit up like a light bulb. So I was like, when oh is the God. best time to use those strips if you want to test? So I would test uh, about two to three hours after you have a meal, like your green routine. Make sure okay, you, I'm you gonna, know. I'm going to be having my Brussels sprouts after this show for lunch. And then, so that's at like 1230, I'll test it. Like, you know, when I, like a few hours later, how fun. Hey, if you don't know the answer to a question, you can phone a friend. Phone a friend. Phone, phone a, friend. a friend. You know, remember on that game show, yeah. you know, if you didn't know, I'm just kidding. Of course. I'm kidding. <laughs> totally kidding. Um, yeah, so I, I don't know about the number. I, actually, looking up the nitrates is, is probably a little bit hard because a lot of the uh, references will have just one or two or three or four different things, and then another reference has three or four different things. So there's not like a, I haven't found a grid reference um, for you know nitrate contents. Uh, Even, but who who would be the person to ask this question to? The guy that gave the nitric oxide talk, Nathan. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah but he yeah. would say supplement, right? That's what he would say. Yeah, so maybe all right. Good, thanks. Um, Levon says, 65, have hypothyroidism most of my life. I take 125 MCG. She doesn't say of what, but um, daily. I read that cruciferous vegetables should not be eaten if you had hypothyroidism. I think that's wrong. I have it. That's all I eat. In hopes of losing a few pounds gained by menopause, I've been eating a lot more cruciferous vegetables and making hypernutrition shakes recommended by Dr. Goldner. Should I be avoiding cruciferous vegetables? Should I eat them steamed or cooked. My thyroid tests show that I'm within normal range, but on the outer fringes of normal. I love cruciferous vegetables and I know they're high in anti-cancer properties. I try to eat whole food plant-based most of the time. I enjoy running and completed a marathon this June and I sleep well. Yeah, a lot of people are afraid to eat uh, cruciferous vegetables. So tell us the truth about them. Don't be afraid. Have no fear. Have no fear. The cool thing is that uh, you're not going to be blindsided because with thyroid, you're kind of testing frequently. And if you have even a concern, you could simply redo the test. Uh, but you don't have to worry. You don't have to worry. This is a mild effect. And, uh, you know, and there, there may be a concern, slight concern with, uh, you know, maybe uh, endogenous production, you know, maybe, maybe it could potentially have an effect on your thyroid production, but you don't have to worry about that. You are actually taking thyroid hormone. So, that's, that's, um, you also wonder sort of like with iodine for that reason, you know, iodine, we try to use iodine to make sure that we're, our thyroid has adequate, um, building blocks to produce, uh, I'm sure, you know, iodine probably does something else in our body, but the main thing we're worried about is thyroid. So, um, but if people are supplementing with thyroid, they can be a little less, you know, um, uh, a little less, uh, on it with the, with the iodine. I recommend people eat like sea vegetables a couple times a week and that sort of thing to make sure they're getting uh, whole food iodine and we're not having to relate to have to use salt. But um, yeah, so for cruciferous and that kind of thing, you're taking the you're taking the thyroid, which is preformed, so you don't have to worry about it. Great, thanks. This is from Carol, a different Carol than the first Carol. I've been a vegetarian and plant-based for many years for health reasons, higher cholesterol and family history of coronary issues. My current family doctor wants me to include more protein in the form of clean animal products, grass-fed and wild fish and oils. 
extra virgin olive oil, avocado in my diet. My D3 is very low and my glucose is elevated. My cholesterol is good, but I'm also taking a statin. Your thoughts? I don't know how eating animals are going to help her, but okay. okay. Can we boil down to the question to what do we do with, uh, if you have a doctor who's pushing protein and, and oil? <laughs> That'd be, I think that's a great question for everybody. Um, um, you know, but I, her, she says her D3 is very low and her glucose is elevated. I, I don't see how the eating animals are going to help her D3. Do you? No, no, no. Um, we talked about D3 already. I recommend at least D3 over 30. Uh, that's uh, vitamin D insufficiency starts at 30, deficiency under 20. So uh, you can get your, your sun or you can supplement. I recommend 2000 if you're not getting much sun or, or 5,000, if you are low already and you're already getting sun and you're already supplementing, move up to 5,000. So, uh, uh, international units for vitamin D, uh, I, it's not a requirement to supplement if you're getting decent sun, uh, but you can test that. So that's that in terms of the glucose, glucose being a little high, that's, you know, concern for diabetes and usually a concern for making sure your body fat percent is much lower and losing weight. Um, I can't remember Chef AJ if she said that she was overweight or not, but um, say she does not say in this. But um, nope. in general, yeah, you want you want to try to lose weight to get into normal BMI, and the best way to do that, and most sustainable way to do that, is with a whole food plant based diet. Uh, and and so yeah, what do you do if you have a doctor who is you know pushing this? Well, you know the doctor can't see what you're eating at home. You know, they look at your labs and they look at that, you know, so you can discuss it with them, um, but uh, they, they can't force you to do anything. And uh, you can recommend that, you know, oh my gosh, you know, uh, you can give them uh, references, you can give them books and you can recommend the movies and stuff like Forks Over Knives, Game Changers. These, these, are, these are great things that help to, uh, to turn people, uh, to help them see the light about the plant-based diet. So the, the key is a good doctor shouldn't be pushy. They shouldn't be, they, they should honor your, you know, wishes and your, your, you know, your cultural and your beliefs. Uh, and so um, a, a good doctor will try to work with you and be, and be, uh, and, and convince you in a way without making you feel uh, bullied, basically. Uh, I have a saying in my practice that you're the king or you're the queen and I'm the king or queen's advisor. And what I mean by that is, you're driving the train. You're, you know, your body's your temple, and I, I'm here to be your advisor. It doesn't mean that you have to do everything I say, and you, and you wouldn't lose me if you disagree. If we have a disagreement, I'm st I'm still here to help move the needle, move the needle along, and get you uh, uh, to be healthy as you can. And uh, and that that's I think that's how uh, as times are a changing, we've got a paternalistic uh, sort of. Um, element to medicine where I do as I say, because I know everything to uh, more of a cooperative, more cooperative. You can search up, you know, some AI thing and you can be about as smart as anybody else pretty quickly on, on any subject. And so now the doctor is more of like the coach and the interpreter and the, and, 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 and the guide as opposed to the, um, the, uh, you know, you know, you know, striking down the hammer and you do what I say, or, you know, my, what I say, or the highway kind of thing. I looked her up and she does not appear overweight. Okay. All right. Yeah. So, 
um, you're going to get way more protein than you need just doing a plant-based diet. Um, you know, spinach is something like 40% protein. Think about the animals, you know, where does an elephant get its protein? Where does a gorilla get its protein? So you're going to get, you're going to get plenty of protein. Too much protein is, can be problematic, you know, especially animal protein can raise blood pressure, that kind of thing. Increased animal protein causes kidney stones. We know it has an effect on the, um, causing potential, uh, insulin resistance, diabetes, that kind of thing. TMAO increasing uh, vascular inflammation, toxins stored in the meat, lots of lots of things, lots of potential badness there. And she said something about her glucose being high too. So uh, sometimes even if you're a normal weight, you can be you can start to become diabetic. Uh, so for my patients in this, we kind of test to see if they're insulin resistant or not. Uh, if they're starting to turn into more of like a type one, 1 1.5, where they, their pancreas isn't producing enough, we can do things like wear the glucose monitors and things, the continuous glucose monitors and watch your blood sugar throughout the day. You learn tips and tricks on how to keep it low, uh, you know, how beans and greens can make your the spike really low versus um, foods that are uh, high glycemic index or carbs that are on the uh, uh, low on the whole grain hierarchy, as per way Brenda Davis puts it, the more processed the carb, the more it's going to spike. So um, don't be scared of carbs. Just be scared of processed carbs. Uh, one thing you'll find is that using these things, using continuous glucose monitors, you'll see that if you eat and then you do a little walk outside or something, it can make your blood sugar go low, uh, normalized. And that when you eat at night, Oh man, it stays up really long at night. It's funny because people in the chat were saying the the doctor that's pushing you know animal products, the person needs to get a new doctor, and you could be their doctor if she lives in one of the twenty six states that you mentioned. That's true. That's true. <laughs> that would be wonderful. I would love to be your doctor. Thank you. Okay, this is from Lori, and she says. Um, I am having my blood labs drawn soon. A1C and cholesterol is all I've ever had drawn. Are there any other lab values that I should request? I'm whole food plant-based, SOS-free for two and a half years, not on, any, not on any medications. I'm 63, healthy, 132 pounds. I do take vitamin D, 5,000 units, and vitamin B12 and B-complex. Yeah, uh, I we did a uh, we did a labs lecture, so that's kind of cool. You could go back and um, this is the this is the first time uh, uh, live where I can say like Dr. Gregor, go look at my video. <laughs> <laughs> first time, never been able to say that before, so that that's really good. So, but um, a typical uh, lab panel might be a little bit more robust. It might include a comprehensive metabolic panel. Uh, I think she I can't remember she mentioned uh, the cholesterol. One cholesterol that's kind of up and coming is something called ApoB. Go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, I'm sorry. I, there was another email that says she's lost 80 pounds to weigh 130 and reversed her high blood pressure, high cholesterol. I'm sure she never, she must have had labs for those at some point, wouldn't you think? Uh, A1C went from 6.5 to 5.4. Um, you know, she's also asking, besides the obvious disease reversals, what also has her body done internally at the cellular level? Hmm. One of the most amazing things that happens to your body on a cellular level is the 
defatting, defatting the, the cupboard. Um, you get visceral fat, you get fat stored in the abdomen. And this is very inflammatory and it's called causes metabolic syndrome and inflammatory markers, HSCRP goes up. So, uh, so many good changes have occurred. And, um, but in terms of the labs, honestly, labs are not, uh, they don't do as much as we think they do. In terms of prevention, prevention labs don't have a lot of evidence, uh, just being honest. Uh, and so a lot of times we use labs to follow symptoms for things and use them as our in, in, our, in our Sherlock Holmes toolbox to try to figure out and make diagnoses. Uh, but in terms of uh, um, prevention and screening, they're, they're, they kind of fall short a little bit. But uh, you know, a typical panel would include a complete blood count to check for anemia, plus maybe a ferritin, which is your iron stores. Potentially you could try that if, if, there, if that was a problem fatigue or um, heavy periods, you might want to check that. Comprehensive metabolic panel uh, will have uh, liver and kidney tests. So that's good. You mentioned A1C. That's a great test. Great 90-day average blood sugar. Um, thyroid, we, people typically screen for thyroid about once a year or once every other year. Uh, and then uh, the uh, we you said that you were taking B12 and vitamin D. Those are things that you can test to make sure that you're actually, you're absorbing what uh, the supplement. And um, th those are the major ones. Great, thanks. One more question. And yeah. then we'll have your, well, actually I was gonna say you could have your lunch, but you're three hours later. You can go test your nitric oxide and do your nasal flush or whatever it is you do. <laughs> That's right. That's right. I've got them uh, backed up. I'm gonna do that right okay. away. Michelle says, um, I just received my blood work and my total bilirubin was elevated at 1.2. Bilirubin direct is, looks like 0.43. I would like clarification on this. I have tended to always have a high bilirubin and was told at one time it was a genetic disorder called Gilbert's syndrome. Could you give me any insights on this syndrome and the possible issues with it? I'm also anemic. Iron is 34, but I seem to never get the proper answer as to what type of anemia I have. And if these issues are related, I have a low white blood count at 2.9, which I tend to run low WBC uh, historically. I'm whole food plant-based, generally no oil, but do consume nuts and seeds off meat since 1991, total vegan uh, whole food plant-based over three years ago. Okay. One of the things um, that is that I see a lot of I see a lot of, one, I see a lot of people with low white counts. And then I make sure that they don't have low B12. And as long as they don't have low B12, I would assume uh, that, and I, I ask, I, I do a, a quick review of their diet and I make sure that it is, uh, it's clean, their diet's clean. Then I assume what's happening with the low white count is that you have low antioxidant, uh, you have high antioxidants in your diet and low amount of inflammatory foods that you're eating and that you just live at a low white count. And so um, you can let that one go if you have normal B12 and, and, that, and you're kind of meeting that, um, meeting that uh, demographic. The other thing is if you have a significant amount of exercise in your life, that can also kind of lower it as li a little bit as well. The other thing is if you develop uh, problematic infections like thrush, where you, nobody really should be getting thrush on the routine, um, uh, you know, or frequent infections and your white cells are not going up. So your immune system, you're sort of immunocompromised. 
that is a sign that then we should worry about something. But otherwise, if all else is normal, that is a normal vegan response. And so uh, in terms of the Gilbert syndrome, I have an assumption that, um, well, there's, there's a certain percentage of people who have Gilbert syndrome where they have um, uh, some increased billy, some in increased billy, and uh, it's usually just very mildly elevated and it's of no real clinical consequence. Uh, and so I'm just trying to uh, remember here if it's uh, people buildup of unconjugated. So yeah, I believe that's the indirect. I called it Gilbert C. I'm not a doctor. Gilbert, it's French. It sounds French. Yeah. So um, that it sounds like there might it might be uh, what's well, a genetic disorder. I believe that uh, where your body converts the indirect to direct at a lower rate or something like this. Um, but it is it is not very clinically significant for the most part. And uh, I, I assume she's not had any problems with this throughout her life. And so sometimes people who get highly stressed, who they have Gilbert syndrome, they get highly stressed. They don't get very much sleep and everything. Their billy can actually kind of climb up a little bit and you'll actually see the whites of their eyes get just a tinge of jaundice. And uh, you know their palms look a little bit more uh, yellow and uh, you, you, you check their liver function tests and everything else. If that's the only thing that's positive, uh, then, then you kind of call it Gilbert syndrome. The other thing that you check is hemolysis, hemolysis, which is blood breakdown. So if your blood is breaking down at a high rate, the um, hemoglobin inside the blood uh, gets, gets broken. The molecule, the ring of the hemoglobin gets broken down and it's a, it's a bilirubin uh, type molecule. And so you look for reasons for blood breakdown uh, and, and you, can do, you can do some tests, LDH and various things to decide whether she's having high uh, turnover with the, her blood, splenic enlargement, things like this. But usually we're blowing it off. We're saying, oh, this is not clinically uh, relevant. I have found that my patients who are intense exercisers can have an elevated billy of unknown cause. And I, I know this kind of sounds dumb, but I think literally what's happening is that as you run, and I mean, I'm probably wrong about this. And so, you know, it makes me feel weird to mention it, but as you run with heel strike and this kind of thing, you, you, there's some blood there that can, gets sort of an impact uh, situation. And that may be that you can have some um, kind of beat up blood cells that get uh, removed from the spleen. And so you have a higher, like maybe a higher rate of turnover. It's just a theory that because um, a lot of my uh, patients that have high exercise uh, rates can have a little elevated bilirubin. Great. Thank you. This was a lot of fun. You're very knowledgeable. All right. All right. Well, shall we do that as the last question, uh, Chef? Yeah, that, that was, I don't see any more, at least that were sent in. So thanks. I'm, I'm sure we'll <laughs> accrue many more next time you're on. We did it. So, oh my God, it was my pleasure, Chef AJ. Thank you so much for letting me be here. You are very fun and easy to talk to. Thank you so much, Dr. Harrington. Thanks again. And thanks all of you for watching another episode of Chef AJ Live. I hope you'll come back tomorrow at 11 a.m. Pacific time when my guest is Allie Essay. She's a family of eight. And when her husband had a stroke, she changed everybody's diet. Take care, everyone. Bye-bye.